Welcome to this Social Policy Connections audio podcast on the topic of moral implications of Australia's close economic ties with China. If you would like to attend one of our events, please refer to our website, www.socialpolicyconnections.com.au. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or via the RSS feed located on our website's home page, as we will be publishing podcasts regularly free of charge. The following podcast features a discussion between Dr. Thomas Bartlett and Dr. Paul Rule, which took place on Wednesday, May the 23rd, 2010, in the Study Centre of the Yarra Theological Union. Thomas Bartlett and Paul Rule have been teaching and researching about China in universities in Australia and the United States, as well as visiting and living in China through the changes from the Cultural Revolution to the present economic dominance. Both have recently retired from teaching Chinese history at La Trobe University, but remain active in research and publications on China. Thomas mainly writes about Qing Dynasty history, but also has a strong interest in current events in China. Paul specializes in the study of Chinese religion, past and present. Here he is beginning the discussion. As you know, as anybody knows who simply watches the the news, uh, China is looming larger and larger in uh, the eyes of Australian policymakers and Australian people. Um, a lot of people have claimed that it's China that saved Australia from the worst effects of the global financial crisis. But others are asking at, at what cost are we putting all our eggs into the one basket? Uh, personally, what worries me is that China, which what seem to be China's intentions vis-à-vis Australia and the Asia-Pacific region generally. Is there anything there that, uh, in regard to government policy that we need to be suspicious of, wary of, uh, cautious about? Tom, would you like to...? Well, I would uh, like to uh, respond to that. And But first, if I may, I'd like to just briefly introduce myself. Um, I, I shrink from the uh, somewhat exaggerated um, uh, introduction Paul has given. Um, I, <coughs> Paul has spoken of um, our previous work in the field of China studies, and I have been involved in it for 40-some years, going on half a century now, but I, cer- I certainly shrink from calling myself an expert. Um, I think that there remains much more to be learned than I have learned. Um, The target is changing as we go on. Um, Times are changing. My own perceptions and perspectives are changing. So uh, it's very complicated. And um, uh, I just would put that at the start. Now, Paul spoke of his own changed view since the time when he advocated recognition and and his rethinking of the positive view he had of China 
In the 70s, uh, the 60s and 70s, in particular the 70s, I suppose, uh, when so many Chinese seemed to regret the Cultural Revolution, to have thought that Maoism was something they should move away from, and the liberalism that was on offer as a model of our relationship with China seemed attractive. And I believe there are many Chinese who sincerely feel, felt that then and still do. Um, and not only of that generation, even of younger generation. Um, Ross Terrell is another Australian whom I've met and who I believe is, has, has been through a similar trajectory. He studied in the United States at Harvard, was taught at Harvard, and he wrote a book called The 800, Chi what is it? 800 Million, The Real China. And this was the wake-up call to your average middle American who knew nothing about China except that it was red China. And Ross Terrell, who of course had been a young left-leaning activist from Australia from his early years, had been very much involved with uh, China and um, sort of China friendship organizations and was exposing Americans to this perspective, and it had a it had a uh, salutary effect. My contacts with Ross Terrell since I came to Australia 14 years ago, when he returned here and talked at La Trobe, uh, give me a sense that I've never heard him quite say it in this in this way, but I think he feels betrayed. Uh, I think he feels that people in in, from China encouraged him to, as Paul suggested, I think a moment ago, that yes, this is what we want. You have what we want. We want that. It hasn't turned out that way. And the big question we have to face is why not? What happened? Um, and I think Ross Terrell has put his finger on it. He's written about it. I recommend his writings to you. He's an Australian who understands Australian politics and society funded very, very well far better than I do, um, and he also understands modern Chinese politics very, very well, exceptionally well-informed and thoughtful. Um, but he attributes, attributes it, if you summarize it in one phrase, Leninism. Now there are people on the internet, sophisticates, who say, well, it's not the real Leninism. Fine, all right, it's a different kind of Leninism, but it still is fundamentally Leninist in its insistence that there is one party in charge, that the party and the state are joined at the hip, um, the army is loyal to the party first and not to the state, uh, that the party places its commissars in every single organization throughout the society, industrial, economic, educational, whatever. There is a party commissar, a party secretary, a party secretary. And every Chinese organization you deal with, uh, with whatever person you, you're talking, he or she is somebody who knows what the party secretary is saying about the subject that you are talking with about that person. Nothing they say to you can be completely divorced from what the party thinks on the, about that subject. Um, so that's what Terrell means by Leninism, and I think it goes a long way to highlighting the uh, concerns that Paul has raised. Are we too dependent on China? Are we subservient? These uh, issues came up certainly in early this early last year in the 
context of the proposed uh, deal with Rio Tinto. Uh, I think that was an opportunistic um, situation that um, arose, of course, because of the sudden crisis, the sudden credit crisis, and people in China who had money to spend knew what they wanted, and they, they moved in where some people on the outside were ready to take their money and for their own agenda, ready to do that deal. Um, my, my observation about the way the Chinese government has historically done things with foreign parties is, you look at the U.S. relationship. The whole breakthrough was done with Nixon and Kissinger. Two people only. Kissinger didn't even take his own interpreters into some of those meetings with the leaders, the other leaders, because he didn't want leaks on his own side. Uh, he wanted to be sure that only he knew what had been said in those meetings. And that was true in the meetings with the Soviet leaders as well. Now, <clears throat> so what the Chinese have learned is that foreign countries can be, well, manipulated is the word that I'm shrinking from using. They can be managed. They can be dealt with through a small group at the top of the leadership. Whereas in China, uh, certainly after Mao was gone, under the post-Mao situation, you always have a group that has to be, um, has to pass on any topic that comes up, particularly regarding external relations. Um, now, on this matter of unrestrained nationalism that Paul's referred to, I, I, I studied in Taiwan from, for five years, from 1965 to 19, sorry, 1967 to 1972. <coughs> um, I, um, I studied uh, a, a year of Mandarin language. I had done two years in the States in graduate school at Princeton, and then I went to Taiwan and studied a year in an intensive year in Taiwan University. And then I entered the master's degree program in Chinese history at, at Taiwan University. And I spent four years together with a number of, a couple of dozen of local students who were learning history. And I, I view this as a kind of golden age in my life, uh, a time when <coughs> I lived with local families for four of those five years. And in the fifth year, I lived in a student dormitory. Um, and uh, based on my understanding of that phase of modern China and its thinking, my question is, uh, when have Chinese in the 20th century not been nationalist? Well, there was a phase when, there, when a kind of socialist cosmopolitanism was certainly fashionable. But I can't believe that China, China's leadership ever looked at, at international issues uh, sacrificing their own interests uh, on behalf of a, of a larger international uh, perspective. Uh, they, they are extremely sophisticated, it seems to me, at um, working two games at the same time, uh, talking about, talking in certain terms externally, but also working an internal agenda. The, the, whole, the whole 
difference between the external and the internal is one of the major themes, it seems to me, in Chinese culture. The nei wai you if you speak Mandarin, you know this phrase. Uh, and it's uh, a, in the early years after the opening that, that Paul referred to, in the 70s and um, early 80s, there were American scholars who went into China, and they were well qualified to make contacts, to meet people, speak with them, uh, and, sh and reflect a sympathetic understanding of modern China. And one of them told me <coughs> that a friend, a man he had befriended, told him that his party secretary had come to him one day and said, "You must curtail your relationship with this foreigner." We must always make a distinction between the internal and the external. The internal and the external must be distinguished. So this is a factor, I mean, uh, that perhaps you could say, all right, in every society, there, this distinction exists in one form or another. But in China, it has a specific, as we say, Chinese characteristic to it uh, that is worthy of our attention. On this nationalism issue, I would just point to Sun Yat-sen. Sun Yat-sen's doctrine was boiled down to three points. The famous Sanmin Jui, the three principles of the people. The first one is Minzu, nationalism. And the second one is Minchen, which is translated as democracy. It means more like literally people's power or something, but it's, it's really a little vague. And the third one is an economic policy, Minsheng which is sometimes translated as socialism. So before the politics, before the economics, the first question is identity. Who are they? Who are we? And the whole, in my view, the whole 20th and 21st century Republican project of China is to essentially convert the map of the Qing Dynasty, which was an imperial state, with major ethnic divisions into a national state in which the dominant ethnic group lives everywhere, has migrated everywhere, and is a majority in all portions of the landscape of the map, and essentially runs it. Uh, so that's a bit of a lengthy reply, afraid, and <laughs> it went to Went, went far beyond your, your point. No, but there's just one thing that I'd like to raise in relation to the politics, and that is the stability of the political system. I mean, it looks marvelously stable uh, from the outside, but there is a great deal of internal disruption and so on going on. I mean, they talk about, what, 20,000 incidents every year in, of local discontent, riots, burnings of government buildings and so on. I mean, this is happening increasingly in rural areas. And the problem is, of course, an incredible and growing gap between the uh, rich and poor, between <coughs> especially urban and, and rural China. Uh, now, I, I don't see any evidence of organization. And it's interesting, of course, that while there's a certain liberalism in relation to expressing opinion, as soon as people start to organise, they're hit on the head. And the, the strongest um, uh, repression has occurred 
against any group that, that shows that they're organised outside the system. In my view, that was what happened with the Falun Gong. That yes. the, it wasn't that, that they, uh, the government so much objected to their religious ideas as they had organised very effectively using especially electronic communications outside the system and they hadn't even realised it was going on and it gave a great uh, shock, wake up to uh, <coughs> a lot of the leaders. But there are, there are a number of, of indicators of political problems uh, in many parts of China. But uh, the state apparatus is, is incredibly strong and in, incredibly efficient and uh, um, it doesn't seem to me that, that uh, China is in any danger of, uh, of a breakdown. However, of course, there are these continuing problems. You mentioned the, the imperial expansion of the Qing dynasty and its inheritance by the People's Republic, but, of course, Tibet... Taiwan, Xinjiang in the, the far west remain very, very sensitive areas and uh, uh, it's certainly true as you said that, that uh, the Han Chinese have been systematically pushed into those areas to the point where they've, they've got a, almost a majority of the population but even so uh, there is great deep rooted resentment against uh, against the Han and against the, the control from the centre. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, there are people who would say that kind of, of party, one-party state is inherently unstable in the long run. But uh, um, I don't see any signs of immediate breakdown. I don't know whether you, what you think about that sort of issue. Well, I, I don't... Um I can't predict um, uh, the prospects for the Chinese state, but I can say I'm not holding my breath waiting for the, 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 the collapse. Uh, there have been, people are making money uh, on predicting the collapse of China by writing books with uh, spectacular titles uh, suggesting that. And I don't recommend you're holding your breath and I'm not even sure I recommend you reading, buying the books necessarily. The, probably the arguments can be summarized by, uh, on the internet at less expense. Um, <coughs> the, as you say, Paul, the, the state does look stable, but then um, a, a considerable part of its uh, efforts are devoted to creating that impression. Um, the Chinese this whole tradition of the, uh, I mean, the imperial Chinese state has a 2,000 year history, as we know. And um, the fundamental notion is that there is no legitimate opposition. There is only one emperor. And the old phrase that's attributed to the classic of poetry is Pu Tian Zhi Xiao, Wang Tu. Under, the, under heaven, under all of heaven, there is no land that does not belong to the emperor. And uh, under, and again, um, uh, in all the lands of the earth, uh, there is no man who is not a subject of the emperor. Now, this is part of the Chinese imperial tradition. And at, a, at an emotional level, I think, carries some weight with some people. Obviously, it's not, it's not a part of the, 
modern political picture. Um, but, I mean, look at East Asia. Let's talk about East Asia. What went wrong in East Asia? Well, the Japanese rose up. They modernized before China did. And they were able to seize Taiwan and Korea. And it was the defeat by Japan in 1895 that provoked the outbreak of Chinese nationalism as an alternative to a reformed imperial structure. There were, there were serious Confucians who argued that the existing Confucian-based imperial system could be reformed you know, on a British model that with a, with a um, constitutional monarch because the Japanese had already done this a generation earlier, and, and these Chinese realized that it looked like a good solution. But then the Japanese came along and essentially broke out of the traditional East Asian paradigm, which had China on top and Japan in a secondary role, at least in Chinese eyes. And Japan defeated the Chinese Navy in a war, took Taiwan, took Korea a few years later, and the response to that was a realization that the whole imperialist system had to go and that a radical nationalist uh, republican uh, reorganization was the only solution. And so Chinese in the 20th century have, have, some Chinese have said, we throw out the baby with the bathwater. We need an emperor. China needs somebody to represent its tradition. I mean, you know, that's very interesting, perhaps to you in Australia, uh, when people discuss the, 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 the whole notion of tradition, republic, monarchy, and so on. But that argument has been even broached. It's too late, obviously, in China now. But um, the, uh, uh, so this, um, I think that the Chinese having really turned their back on so much of their past have a great, there's a, a, a real, they, they talk about a spiritual vacuum. Now, in a context such as this organization, talk about spiritual vacuum is something I think that is an appropriate topic. And obviously it has important ethical implications. Um, I sometimes think, I, I sometimes use the phrase, Chinese are hungry for respect. Chinese were accustomed to feeling respected. At least that's how they view their own history. And um, a large part of it is true. Well, some of it is manufactured. I mean, their history as it's transmitted and taught is manufactured in a sense by the state holders, by the, by the designers of the imperial system. It's not a, it's not a sort of accident that sort of fell out of the sky. It, it, the Chinese imperial system is the intentional, deliberate, thoughtful creation over many, many generations of educated uh, and uh, devoted people, committed people. Um, and it has its own agenda. Um, <coughs> Perhaps um, we could get on to the economic <coughs> by way of some of the things that you've already said. Um, the China's Chinese system seems very stable and so on, but to a large extent it rests on the success of the government in economic yes. progress. Now, there are people who say that 
all is not nearly as rosy as it appears on the, the surface, that, for example, economic statistics in China are notoriously controlled by the government and uh, some of them are clearly false. Secondly, there are very big problems in things like the banking system because the state, or rather the party, and the party, the families of top party people and so on, uh, cannot be denied by the banks that many of the banks are technically probably uh, uh, bankrupt. Uh, but the, uh, the bad loans are growing all the time and, and creating an enormous problem. Then there's, of course, the corruption of party officials and so on. Um, I was in Macau recently and they were all lamenting the fact that uh, the casinos are doing so badly because the Chinese government has cracked down on Chinese officials visiting Macau to, to gamble in the casinos. That's where a lot of the, the money was, was going. Uh, and uh, uh, there's uh, an artificial exchange rate which a government can manipulate successfully for a period of time. But, but if the fundamentals are out of line with the exchange rate, as many people claim is the, the situation at the moment, then uh, there could be trouble. Um, the Chinese um, external markets, of course, have suffered badly as a result of the global financial crisis. Their sales to the United States, to Europe, uh, are badly affected by that. Although against that, of course, is the fact that China has the largest internal market in the world, which has been largely neglected. In other words, people have not been indulging in consumer spending on a very large scale, and people claim that what's happening is the Chinese government is using all its resources to persuade people to, to spend rather than to, to, to save as in the rest of the, the world. Uh, but um, I don't know whether you have any views on that question of the sustainability of the, 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 the Chinese economic miracle. Um, I'm not an economist and I just you know, pick up these alarmist things. I think a lot of them are of the same variety as the, the alarmist uh, political prognostications about China's intentions and so on. Still, there do seem to be some fundamental economic problems. And as we get locked into that Chinese economy with its demand for, for minerals and so on, uh, we could well suffer if there were, as well as um, the Chinese people suffering, there were a, a serious economic downturn. Well, I think, uh, I think your pointing to the economy is, is very apropos, Paul. As you say, it's the uh, first thing that the government mentions when they try to justify uh, their policies. Um, they say that never before in Chinese history have so many Chinese lived so well. Um, and um, they, uh, uh, they, this, the getting rich is, is a good expression of the respect that I said a moment ago Chinese are hungry for. Uh, it, it, you, you can see it in uh, very, there's ample evidence of this. Now, I'm not an economist either, and I, I struggle to really comprehend much of what I read, and I do try to read some of what I see on the internet. I, there is a man that I would recommend who has a blog his name is Michael Pettis, P-E-T-T-I-S. 
He's uh, a former, as I understand it, uh, stockbroker, and he is also a professor at the Guanghua Business School of um, Peking University, isn't it? Uh, one of the major universities in China. He's also a senior member of the staff at one of the think tanks in Washington. He's an American, um, and uh, he also runs a, he's, a, it's, it's, he's sometimes uh, described uh, in terms of his other interest, which is he, he runs a disco in, in Beijing. Now, I'm not really much interested in that, but he's not joking. <laughs> um, at any rate, uh, he is, I think, recognized as one of the most perceptive and insightful commentators on some of the dangers of what's going on in China. There are serious questions about how these things have been managed. Uh, naturally, I think there's been a lot of input from the outside. Um, many Chinese have come to uh, uh, foreign uh, Australian, Amer North American, and European business schools, uh, universities to study economics, and with the expectation that they would go back and then the Chinese administration of finance, whether in the government or in the banks, the, to the extent that they are not part of the government, would become more in tune with, akin to what goes on in the rest of the world. And I think to, to some appreciable extent that is happening. And yet, policy is subject to imperatives that are defined by people who are politically oriented. Or, uh, who are not economists, and um, much of the discussion of this is, is really um, not transparent. China is notorious for its uh, lack of clarity. People, Chinese journalists have actually, or, or, or researchers, have actually been jailed for being employed as consultants by foreign organizations to simply read public Chinese newspapers and report to the foreign organization the information contained in open source documents. Now, I mean, in a sense, in a crazy way, that may, makes sense because if you hear what occasionally people from real intelligence organizations say, they say, well, 80 to 90 percent of what we know comes from public sources. So maybe, maybe, and I, but there is this notion of there, the, the, the Chinese sector is internal and it should be off-limits in some ways, or inaccessible. And my phrase for that is the inscrutability racket. Uh, there is a whole uh, dimension of Chinese life which has the practical application I was just describing, but it has other uh, applications in, in broader areas of culture and, and practical things. And I call it the inscrutability racket, the whole notion that you can't understand us. You know, it's just beyond you. Um, <coughs> so, um, uh, the economy, I would, I suggest Michael, Michael Pettis is writing. He thinks there is serious danger. He can't say when it will happen. Um, and you have to allow for the possibility that he's writing for the benefit of people he knows in the system who are reading what he writes and will be responding to it. And he doesn't mind that. I mean, as many people have said, we don't really hope that China collapses. Uh, and, you know, there are consequences to that scenario that, I mean, if you think 
both people from the Vietnam War was a crisis, just multiply by 10 uh, or more uh, if you had a serious fracturing of, of China. So I think the Chinese state itself, the ruling groups, have an overwhelming uh, momentum and, and requirement to keep the whole thing together. And I think most foreign powers are in league with that. Uh, the, the issue here is one of a balance. Um, and as Paul's, uh, as, as, as this statement in the, in the uh, flyer said, do we think enough about what we have gotten ourselves into? We've signed on to this relationship. And I think, you know, the United States was involved in this from the early 20th century. Uh, uh, it used to be fashionable to say, oh, those uh, American um, missionary uh, institutions all wanted to support the Jiang government and they went down the wrong road. Well, there was a lot of, you know, translated into other language, it's a way of saying there was an awful lot of goodwill in America toward helping China find a modern definition of itself and a modern role in the world where it would not feel resentful uh, and alienated. And I think that goodwill still exists. I think many Chinese are very sensitive to condescension. To condescension. And, and I think this is a very sensitive subject yeah. all around. Um, how do you convey goodwill? How do you implement goodwill, uh, and so yeah. on? Well, um, even if we <coughs> believe that China will remain politically stable for the immediate future and economically viable, there are still, of course, the questions about our responsibility and so on to China that come from the, the, the ethical questions, uh, our support of a system which is in gross uh, violation of human rights in practically every respect. And it's not just a question of, of you know, Western values and Asian values and so on. <coughs> um, Chinese values, Confucian values, are just as strong on, on uh, the, the basic sort of things that are, are being flaunted all, all the time in, in China at the moment. Um, I think it's not too much to say that uh, there is no rule of law in China. There's a legal apparatus, there are courts, there are judges and so on. But um, although there are a lot of lawyers now coming out of the law schools, who are the judges? Most of them are ex-army men. It's, a, it's the way somebody, a general, finishes his career. He's appointed a judge. And they're people who, who are totally responsive to the party, who have very little knowledge of law and certainly no interest in, in, in acquiring that knowledge. It's a, for them, it's a question of authority and, and so on. And um, if somebody is charged in China, it almost automatically means they will be condemned. It's assumed that they will be. So uh, there is a, a lack of rule of law and, of course, uh, non-Chinese businesses dealing with China have found this to their cost. Um, not just recently, but, but from the beginning of the, the economic opening of China. There's the corruption at all levels, which I've mentioned before. Um, certainly, there's a crackdown every now and then. They, they shoot a few people as, a, as an example, but um, 
they're the people who haven't got enough protectors at the top, as far as you can make out. Um, corruption is, is enormously widespread. And, of course, there is the question of freedom of religion, which, which is important to a lot of people here, I would think. Um, there are all sorts of constitutional provisions. I mean, there is freedom of religious belief. Belief. Not practice. That's explicitly excluded from the, from the clauses about it. And um, anything that is a disturbance to public order, any religious behaviour that's a disturbance to public order, is excluded by the, the religious law. Uh, and uh, certainly um, any body that does any church or small group or large group that doesn't register with the Religious Affairs Bureau, register with the government and put themselves under control of the government is automatically um, regarded as in breach of, of, of the law. So there are all sorts of features of Chinese society which I think we would abhor and regard as, as fundamentally unethical and yet um, our economic relationship is in some ways propping up that, that sort of system. On the other hand, of course, there are the old arguments about better to be involved with them, better to deal with them, better to, to um, uh, bring them into the, the, the uh, human family and the, the international legal system. That was the sort of argument that we used to use when we spoke about recognising Red China way back then. Uh, but uh, all these people who thought that, that continuing good relations with China and helping their economic progress would bring about changes in these, these basic values um, uh, seem to have been mistaken. If anything, things are are getting worse. Um, certainly, my more recent visits to China, I've felt that that the presence of of the security people was much more evident than than it, it used to be. Um, I'm thinking of two conferences I attended in in China. Um, one had unfortunately got some public notice in uh, in uh, Italy when. The, um, one of the uh, Italian politicians had loudly proclaimed that he was coming to this conference in Beijing and he was going to try and bring about reconciliation between the Vatican and, and uh, chi the Chinese government. And the place was absolutely crawling with these security people. You could recognise them because they were the only ones who attended the after early afternoon sessions. All the other Chinese had gone to have their, their afternoon snooze and they would be sitting there looking uh, bored and so on during the sessions. And then the conference I was at late last year in Beijing, again, the security people were, were very much in evidence in a way that I'd never, never noticed before. It was a strange conference because it was a joint conference between um, a research institute at the Catholic University of Leuven and the Academy of Social Sciences, rather strange bedfellows. And... Uh, Obviously, some people, at least perhaps the security people from the academy, were, were worried about it. And uh, at dinner one evening, I was sitting next to the priest director of the Leuven Institute, 
somebody came and whispered in his ear, I've just seen four men go into your room. He said, oh, yeah, they're the security blokes I was expecting. And he said, my laptop is out there on the desk. They could look at it. So I have no worries about it. An old China had who had dealt with that sort of thing uh, before. But, um, you know, somehow or other, uh, that system is, is, is uh, at least as strong and perhaps um, stronger than it, that it once was. I suppose security people, by definition, have to have something to do. But um, even so, uh, um, you know, I just think that it's a kind of state that uh, we ought to have grave doubts about propping up to the extent that, that, that we do. Although propping up is probably the wrong image because there's very little probably we can, we can do about it. But still, um, I'd wonder whether you, what you thought about those, those sorts of issues. Mm -hmm. Well, these, these are issues that are important and resonate with, with uh, my thoughts and experience. As you say, rule of law means really rule of the party through the legal process. It's really, it's, it's not rule of law as we understand rule of law. And I think that's a, a good example, and there are many other good examples that could be mentioned, uh, of the general precept when looking at China, if you find yourself saying, well, yes, uh, now I understand it, in general, don't let, just check yourself. You know, it's like that feeling of euphoria that one sometimes has when something happens, so say, this is too good to be true. If you find yourself feeling that, it probably is too good to be true, and you'd better wake up. I've had this experience uh, a couple of times, and, and, and uh, with China, it's, it doesn't come in big bites, it comes in small bites, but they add up. Um, I suggest, you know, one way to learn, and this is something that I uh, look forward to. I, I retired a couple of years ago, and uh, one of the things I hope to be doing more of in my retirement is learning to play the game of Go, Weiqi, as it's called in Chinese. And this is, the, the, this is a game which expresses Chinese sense of strategy. Chinese strategic awareness of how you uh, deal with opponents. It's not like the chess we're familiar with in which there's blunt attacks. It's by surrounding and neutralizing. And it applies a, a, a more diverse uh, and uh, a subtle form of strategy. Uh, but uh, you mentioned four men in your room. I had six men in my room. <laughs> <laughs> I came back to my room one day and uh, because they knew I was a Mandarin speaker. I mean, that's the thing. As you yes, say, your yes. friend was an old China yes, hand. Yes, yes, and yes. these are the people they're looking at. Yeah. Uh, they knew I was a Mandarin speaker, and they I came into my room. I opened the door at the end of a working day, and six men filed out of my room, <laughs> one by one after me. And the last one spoke to me in Mandarin, as they never do to foreigners, unless they know you speak Mandarin. And they generally assume you don't. And he said, we're fixing the television. <laughs> and what he meant is we're installing the listening device. Um, and I just smiled and I didn't make anything of it. But um, I, I didn't take it so graciously as your friend did. I, I, I in my youth, was callow, callow youth, I was outraged. <laughs> I didn't forgive them for it. But it, I must say, you know, there's this phrase from the, uh, the record of the Lord McCartney's mission to China, to the Qing Dynasty in the 
1790s, uh, which says we were treated with the utmost courtesy throughout and watched with the most careful surveillance throughout. <laughs> so uh, that, that's really the, the, the way it's done. Um, <coughs> corruption, in, you know, you talk about, we've talked about collapse. Collab the interesting thing about collapse is it could be something that happens very quickly. It, it's hard to predict. There's a tipping point, perhaps, when suddenly it all goes wrong, and, and uh, the catastrophe theory. Uh, and I think, I think sophisticated Chinese uh, sort of political thought based on long historical experience is aware of this. And Chinese tend to be very, very uh, apprehensive of little things going wrong at the start. You know, and this is true of you know, children's education. Why, if you let him or her do this, just think what it may lead to. A, a very scrupulously attentive um, uh, uh, concern for, for being sure that things go exactly as you believe they should with minimum um, uh, uh, allowance for the, the unexpected. Um, and um, I now there's a journalist whom I respect very much uh, and I won't name him because I'm going to quote him and uh, that might be indiscreet because he said some good things that I commend to you but he, he writes for the Australian and he knows a lot about China and I, I recommend you read the, his writings in the Australian he said he, said he, he was in China and he found many you know, talking about what happens to people who, who get to know China um, by, by experience there. He said, he, said he, he stayed there for two or three years and he felt that many of the, he said it was almost impossible for long-term foreign residents in China to avoid taking a essentially compliant point of view. And that is your, your access to news and information is so restricted your perspectives are so dominated by the official uh, pronouncements. Um, we, we often hear it said, yes, uh, you can say anything in private now. And that may well be true. But the limits of that are, are not very great. I mean, if you have dinner with a friend, maybe you can, one or two people, uh, you can talk about these things. But as Paul said, the moment it gets much larger, it's considered you're organizing something. Um, and that's where you run afoul of the uh, authorities. Now, this journalist said, well, China's on a roll now. They're getting rich. Uh, that's exciting. Uh, it gives a certain kind of triumphalist feeling about it. Um, so, but they, they, they've done a lot of the easy things, and there are what's left to be done. A lot of the things that have to be done are more difficult. They're building up deficits like the environment, like the bad will created by corruption, that's still there. Um, it's just being suppressed by force. And uh, he, his projection is China, he said, we just have to hope China becomes a status quo power in a, in a couple of generations. And he cited, he knows enough Chinese history to know that that is what happened in the past. It's, it takes such a powerful effort to establish a new regime, a new dynasty, that this regime does everything it wants for a generation or two, and then its leadership becomes more mediocre, uh, uh, divergent viewpoints emerge, 
and it becomes a status quo power. Simply maintaining the goods that you've got in place becomes the overriding goal. Now, from one perspective, that's what we would like to see, perhaps, uh, <coughs> uh, rather than something that was exceptionally radical or, or, or chaotic. Um, I think one thing we haven't touched on is the military dimension. And within the Asia-Pacific, China's navy is developing in a way that is really puts a lot of uh, familiar uh, uh, relationships into a new light. Um, how is, now the story is that China needs a navy, not just apropos the Taiwan issue, but China needs a blue water global navy for the same reasons that the European powers and the North American powers want navies, and that is so that you can guarantee freedom of shipping around the world and, and safe passage of things of interest to you. China needs overseas resources, so China needs a navy to protect it. They don't want it to be dependent on foreign navies. All that sounds very reasonable. And, um, and yet, there are questions about China's capabilities, China's aims, and the consequences of this kind of development for a country like Australia. Um, <coughs> And also for, for, as well, for Japan and uh, uh, other countries off the eastern shore of China. Uh, maybe this isn't, uh, there isn't time or isn't the place for, for getting into that. I sometimes think of China as uh, what a lot of what um, we, it passes for common knowledge in the West is, is the result of what I call the one-way mirror effect. I think the Chinese know a lot more about us than we know about them. And sometimes they tell us that in so many words, as a, a chiding us to sort of make more of an effort, to stop complaining that, you know, you, you, that the Chinese aren't behaving as we expected and learn more about China. Then you'll be able to do better in relations with China. Well, uh, that's not a bad idea, <coughs> but we have to remember in, in the context of that discussion that there is, uh, uh, <coughs> it's not really easy to, to really understand China. Um, and uh, uh, Paul asks the question, what can we do? There are obviously a lot of these policy points that we've talked about. Ordinary people, such as myself, uh, and I suppose many of you, perhaps are not in a position to do very much, but I think by contributing to um, discussion in a reasoned way that recognizes the importance of China's place in the present and the future while raising some of the difficult questions without, without shrinking from them uh, and yet without doing so in a, a sort of emotional or, or um, hysterical way. I think the, these are these the, these are some pointers that I try to remind myself of. <coughs>